Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is episode 53. Glad to be with you. Uh, I'm going to offer my standard disclaimer here, though anyone who's listening to this podcast, and I know there's two or three of you out there, um, will be familiar with this. Uh, the um, opinions expressed on Strange Sound are mine and mine alone. I'm Joe. <laughs> the opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my friends or family or employer or associates or neighbors or, you know, anyone who either likes me or excoriates me on social media or even people who listen to this podcast. Um, they are my own. And um, if you have any questions about those opinions or have any pushback, by all means, get in touch with me. I will have contact information, as I always do, at the end of the show. And so, on with the show, such as it is. Yes, uh, you know, I've been following a uh, different format lately, and anyone who's been listening to this probably knows that I've shortened it up quite a bit. Uh, my previous 50 episodes or so were about 40 minutes half an hour to 40 minutes long. I've been trying to keep this down to less than 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes uh, optimally, uh, partly because it's uh, it's just, to me, it's just easier to do, and I don't want to ramble too much. Um, if people prefer the longer format, by all means, get in touch with me. Let me know. I'm happy to go on longer. I just don't want to go on longer if no one's going to hear it. So, with no further ado... Let us continue. I am, as is my custom now, I am going to read my furious rant from the previous week. Um, that was just posted yesterday, which in my time, <laughs> my t the time I am uh, recording this is Saturday, March 6th, 2021. It is Saturday. And I am in my basement recording this. And this uh, blog post, this furious rant was posted yesterday. It was posted on Friday, March 5th. And it is entitled, Enter the Blob. <clears throat> As anyone who listens to my podcast, Strange Sound, this podcast in fact, knows... I've had serious differences with the Biden team on foreign policy from early on in their campaign. What first gave me pause was the fact that the issues section of their campaign website included no foreign policy items whatsoever, except one or two bank shop mentions of other countries in the context of discussions about essentially domestic policy issues like immigration and energy policy. Of course, Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as Donald Rumsfeld once told us. And in this context, the cliché is true. While Biden's outward-facing platform was a blank slate on foreign policy, there was definitely a there there, even if we couldn't see it. And no great surprise, the Biden foreign policy is basically built around the return of the blob, a.k.a. the imperial foreign policy establishment that has dominated administrations of both major parties since the American empire began. We saw evidence of this in stark relief this past week with the bombing of quote-unquote Iranian-backed elements in Syria. 
Immediately, we saw mainstream commentators like Richard Haas on television describing this as a measured and appropriate response to what they described as Iranian provocations, parroting the administration line that the U.S. needed to do this to show the Iranians that they can't do whatever they want in the region without consequences. That privilege we reserve to ourselves, of course, hence the raid. The Biden administration is taking the path of least resistance, returning to the settled imperial order of confronting Iran at every opportunity, imposing conditions on them unilaterally, and not taking responsibility for our own disastrous policy decisions over the past four years, which themselves compounded the disastrous policy decisions of the preceding 75 years. The fact is, the Biden administration is building on that bad policy. While Anthony Blinken has not openly endorsed Trump's recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the occupied Golan Heights, he is leading the State Department in returning to something that still looks a lot like that recognition while keeping the American embassy in Jerusalem, a decision that cements in place this open defiance of the very concept of a two-state solution. The Biden State Department is still calling Juan Guaido the interim president of Venezuela when he is in fact no such thing and has no standing as a leader of that country, a delusional policy originated by the Trump crew. Biden is unlikely to withdraw U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara, a criminal quid pro quo over recognition of Israel brokered by the Trump administration. And don't even get me started on Saudi Arabia. In fact, as far as I can see, the only policy Biden appears poised to reverse is Trump's opening to North Korea, literally the only good thing the man ever did, albeit by accident. With respect to foreign affairs, war and peace, we appear to be locked into place, regardless of which major party runs the White House. Bad news for anyone who might have hoped this presidential transition would bring a saner approach to the world. Doesn't seem likely. Love you, Joe. That's that, my friends. That's the furious rant for this week. And as you can see, uh, not super happy with these folks. I have to say, um, since I wrote that and since I posted that, I've seen a couple of um, articles and seen on television at least portions of briefings at both the Defense Department and the State Department. And again, I think it's underlining this uh, conclusion that we're building on bad policy. It's not a surprising one. I'm not at all surprised. No one should be surprised. Um, this is typically what happens in, particularly in Democratic administrations now. Um, it's almost like, I'm going to go way out on a limb here. And again, this is, uh, <laughs> let me preface this by saying, uh, this is the feature I've been calling, and now this. <laughs> In other words, is this me tarrying on a bit from after I read my blog post, expanding on it a bit? Be that as it may. Um, uh, what I'm talking about is uh, just the observation, which seems kind of obvious to me, that um, it tends to be that Republican administrations over the last 30, 40 years have sort of pushed the envelope on foreign policy and 
military intervention and and what not. Um, and when followed by a Democratic Party administration, those expansions of imperial power and imperial reach are built upon, but not so much expanded upon. Like Democratic presidents tend to build on the precedents set by Republican presidents. So in the case of, uh, I, I think that probably the most dramatic leap forward uh, that we've had in recent decades was was the Reagan administration. Not that the Carter administration or preceding administrations hadn't sort of um, acted in an imperial way. Naturally, they did. Our government has been acting in an imperial fashion for many, many decades, for as long as we've been able to at some level. I mean, essentially since our founding. (laughs) To the extent that we were able to, we've been acting in an imperial fashion. And, you know, I mean, that extended to um, what is now the West of our country, um, what is now the Midwest, what, you know, essentially the entire country itself, the doctrine of manifest destiny, the Monroe Doctrine, so our um, expansion of and our expression of power in this hemisphere and beyond this hemisphere, um, in the Philippines, um, Hawaii, I won't go through the list. You probably know it just as well as I do. Obviously, what I'm talking about is building on bad policy, as I was saying in my in, in my blog post. And really, a major leap forward was during the Reagan administration. Now, there was still a post-Vietnam reluctance to get um, directly involved in foreign conflicts with the American military, um, with American soldiers doing the fighting. This did happen during the Reagan administration, but it was done in in kind of a cautious fashion, um, largely because of the pushback on the part of the public. There was a large anti-war contingent, pretty avid protests that grew largely out of the um, anti-nuclear movement. Uh, People will remember this um, who are a little on the older side. (laughs) Certainly the plowshares movement, uh, uh, you know, I I won't go through the, all the names, but there was a lot of activist activity around the um, Reagan administration's support of despotic regimes in Central America and South America against their um, war on Nicaragua, which had had its revolution, its Sandinista revolution in 1979, and which had been targeted by the Carter administration as well. Reagan sort of took it up to the next level. He took everything up to the next level. I mean, our involvement in Afghanistan began in the 70s with the Carter administration in essence, the war in Afghanistan, um, Reagan bumped that up to another level, bumped up the Central American um, support for despotic regimes and the attack on the Sandinistas and, of course, the attack on Cuba during the during the Reagan years, during the 1980s. And uh, that carried through um, 
with the first Bush administration, which um, of course launched the Gulf War, um, as well as the invasion of Panama and the um, action in Somalia, which was called a sort of um, peacekeeping action, but it was really a lot more aggressive than that. But uh, I mean, the Gulf War was kind of a precursor to the later um, post 9-11 conflicts. The Gulf War had quite a, a large opposition to it. People don't tend to remember this. There were large demonstrations against the Gulf War um, prior to its outbreak um, during the sort of buildup period when they were calling it Desert Shield as opposed to Desert Storm, when they were building up military capabilities in Saudi Arabia and uh, in preparation for the invasion. And uh, there was a fairly close vote in the Senate with a lot of Democratic senators um, voting against moving forward, including uh, the sort of neoliberal senator we had from New York, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, (laughs) who voted against uh, going into so-called liberate Kuwait. And everyone kind of knows how that went. Um, But that was a big leap forward. The Clinton years that followed expanded on those um, liberties, let's say, uh, extended the sanctions against Iraq, um, continued regular strikes against Iraq, military strikes, uh, military strikes in um, Sudan, um, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, and they built on what Reagan had sort of set in place. And they continued the policy and built on that policy. But then, of course, that was followed by the Bush II administration, the W. Bush administration, which greatly expanded, basically using the the blank check that was handed to them by Osama bin Laden when he um, implemented the 9-11 attacks. And, uh, you know, W. Bush had a blank check, essentially, and, and he cashed it. <laughs> Uh, and invaded Afghanistan, invaded Iraq. We're still dealing with the fallout from that. Did many other things that uh, are a little less prominent, but followed by Obama, which, you know, the Obama administration, again, built on what Bush too had ex- had accomplished in expanding, in not only starting the war on, on terror, the sort of global war on terror, so-called, but, you know, expanding this imperial policy uh, pretty much to every corner of the globe. Uh, Obama only expanded on this and refined it to a certain extent, put a smiley face on it in some respects, but he also, you know, started conflicts in, in Libya, um, in Syria, worked on that. um, And I think expanded our footprint in Africa as well and in other parts of Africa besides Libya. So, you know, we're seeing something very similar right now. Um, probably most dramatically, some of the examples I mentioned, I, I'm going to include in the show notes this week a link to uh, a posting on Mondo Weiss 
Uh, it's entitled, Where Do Palestinians Go for Accountability? AP asks a dozen times as State Department founders. And uh, it's <laughs> their spokesperson at the State Department, uh, the administration spokesperson at the S- State Department is Ned Price, who's been kind of a uh, staple on MSNBC over the last few years during the Trump administration. Now he's back in the saddle. I think he was a spokesperson prior to probably during the Obama administration. This article starts the International Criminal Court's decision to investigate war crimes in Palestine continues to stir things up. Israel and its lobby are incensed by the move. And yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris had a call with her friend Benjamin Netanyahu and the two agreed on their opposition to the ICC jurisdiction over Israeli personnel, quote, unquote. An AP um, journalist named Matt Lee asked the question of Ned Price at the State Department briefing, um, I think a couple of days ago. It was Wednesday, I believe, of last week. He asked basically, where do the Palestinians go? If they can't go to the ICC, um, where do they go? For justice, who do they appeal to if they've if they've got a problem with with the administration um, of the Israelis in the West Bank and in Gaza? Um, if they've got human rights claims, who do they go to? And um, Ned Price, you know, just kind of ignored the question. I mean, Lee, to his credit asked the question several times and and persisted. Um, And they have a transcription of the uh, exchange and this article. Mondo Weiss posted this, and I believe there's a video posting as well. Lee had said, considering your position on Palestinians now, so where, where where should the Palestinians go to get accountability for what they claim to be problems? To the Israeli courts? Where do they go? And Ned Price replied, Matt, look, we, of course, the United States is always going to stand up for human rights. We're always going to stand up. And then Lee interrupts him. Where do they go? Where do they go? And Price responds, Matt, this is why I think you have Lee. Where? Price. That is why you've heard us continue to endorse. And, you know, so it's it's this back and forth where Lee keeps asking him, where do they go? And And Price has this has this kind of pat answer that he's reading out to him. He could be reading it off of a teleprompter. I mean, it's their their answer is basically, you've heard us continue to endorse and to call for a two-state solution to this running conflict. A two-state solution because it protects Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state, but also it will give the Palestinians a viable state of their own and fulfill their legitimate aspirations for dignity and self-determination. Okay, that's their line. But again, he will not answer the question because they cannot answer the question. Because the answer is they have nowhere to go. And we will, rec- we will not recognize their right to go to this international um, instrument of justice, this international institution that is set up to adjudicate matters of this type because these people have no standing. Because Palestinians, we have decided, have no standing. Now, is this worse than the Trump administration? No. But is it materially an improvement over the Trump administration? No. They just make nice noises. They have their pat little phrases that they say, oh, we support a two-state solution. But they're not willing to do anything about it. 
they're not willing to do anything affirmatively in in favor of Palestinian rights. At least they haven't shown any inclination towards it. Now, I will say that the Obama administration at the very end did take a minor half-step forward in favor of the Palestinians by abstaining from a vote in the UN to condemn Israel for human rights abuses. And, you know, they got dogpiled on by that. But, you know, it was towards the end of the Obama administration. It was in the last months of the Obama administration. They waited until the very end. And up until then, they'd been nothing but supportive of it. I mean, other than some stray rhetoric here and there, some comments by John Kerry during the the 2014 attack on Gaza. But (laughs) this is not a good start. And this is what I mean by returning to the blob. The blob is this, you know, this foreign policy establishment that's been criticized by the left. It's also been criticized by Trumpists, but really they represent the same. (laughs) In a similar way to W. Bush's sort of neocon version of the foreign policy consensus, this sort of balls out, aggressive, you know, let's invade as many countries as we can get under our belt in as few years as possible um, attitude. Uh, The Trump administration was a bit like that, maybe a little bit more rangy and weird and unpredictable. But at its core, as I've explained previously on this on this podcast, as I've argued previously on this podcast, I should say, at its core, the State Department under Trump and the Defense Department under Trump were within the margins of this broader foreign policy consensus. It was Trump sometimes strayed, you know, outside the lines. It was enough to give people hope occasionally because it seemed like he was willing to think in ways that presidents wouldn't allow themselves to think previously. But he's such a loose cannon and such a crackpot that he was just as likely to go in any direction as any other direction. So whereas I have actually praised Trump over his opening to Korea in modest terms, because he never followed through. It was part of some kind of narcissistic, you know, apotheosis on his part, I'm sure, had nothing to do with saving people's lives. But ultimately, if it had been followed through with, it could have made an an enormous difference for the people on the Korean Peninsula. It wasn't because his State Department and his Defense Department were not on the same page. And he didn't feel strongly about it other than he wanted a new friend The new friend was Kim Jong-un. So, you know, he was glad to have the friend. (laughs) Right? Now, there wasn't a war, you know, so I'm glad of that. And I'm glad that he stopped the, uh, as I've said before, I'm glad that he stopped the military exercises, which were provocative. I'm sure we'll be headed back in that direction once again. So, you know, I've wandered a bit. I apologize. Or maybe I don't apologize. I've gone on a bit too long. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, Suffice to say, not a good sign regarding foreign policy and no big surprise. Right, friends? Those of you out there who uh, are on the same page as me, I'm sure you're not surprised at all. Anyway, that's all I've got.
I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a voice message, a one-minute voice message, by going to anchor.fm slash strange sound. That's anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can also contact me via the contact link at big-green.net. Just follow the contact link, and you can find ways to get in touch with me via uh, social media. Uh, I've also got a social media account for, I've got a Twitter account for Strange Sound. That's at Strange Sound Pod. You can follow our posts. You can personal message me. You can tweet at me. You can excoriate me. You can do whatever you like. Have at it. Glad to hear from you. I will be back, I believe, next week. Till then, take good care. Watch out out there. If you live in Texas, keep wearing that mask. If you live in Alabama, keep wearing the damn mask. Don't listen to your governor. Just stay safe, stay well. We'll see you next time.